2: Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. This is the first episode of 2023. It's good to be with you. I've been gone and missing in action a lot in 2022 um, for a variety of different reasons, which I won't bore you with. Um, But uh, it was a busy year. And so I'm looking forward to this year. And again, educating our public out there that is uh, our faithful followers of flight safety detectives. This, I think, is going to be a good show to start the year off because it's about spatial disorientation. And of course, we have a special guest with us as we want to do, I think, more and more in the year 2023 is to have uh, another talking head, another pretty face to join this cast of characters when we talk about aviation safety issues. So, We're going to be welcoming Andy Watson, who is a professional air traffic controller, and John's going to introduce him here shortly. But uh, again, I think this is going to be an interesting show. It deals with spatial disorientation and some of the issues, not only with pilots, but the issues that the air traffic controllers, uh, of course, have to deal with when they are under the understanding that uh, a pilot may be disoriented and uh, need additional help. So My friend, I will turn it over to you, John, to introduce Andy.
3: Okay. So as Greg said, Andy Watson is an air traffic controller. Unfortunately, he couldn't maintain positions, so he's had to hold a number of them. They shipped them around to different locations. They moved them around to different positions trying to find a niche for them. And then then they found a niche. They sent him to air traffic safety oversight, a management position. So, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. We move him right up the ladder. Uh, so he was working in Washington with all the brain trusts down there. And he's he, and now, seriously, he's seen a lot of issues and he sees a potential that maybe be able to help a lot of pilots through spatial disorientation. I mean, we've seen a, a number of accidents with, that has been identified as a contributing factor. And there's probably many more that it wasn't identified in as being a contributor factor. But Andy's also an author, and he spared me the the pain of having to remember the book and what to do. All you have to do is look over his left shoulder, and he's got his paid-for advertisement hanging on the wall. (laughs) How convenient. Yeah, we're going to charge him a fee. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we should have charged him to be on. But uh, in any event, he's currently working out in Leesburg, Virginia, uh, and uh, and let's just get into this spatial disorientation uh, process and what you've come up with as a possible mitigating factor uh, for pilots and spatial disorientation. So Andy, why don't you take it away and and give our listeners a uh, a brief overview of what what we're going to be in store for us?
0: Well, John, thank you so much for that wonderful and uh, very descriptive introduction for me. <laughs> I I do appreciate that. <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, um, th- there's no there's no mercy in aviation. Yeah, It just wait,
0: this
2: show gets worse. So
0: no, oh, okay, sounds good. <laughs>
3: Tighten up that buckle, Andy.
0: There we go. I'm strapped in. So, (laughs) but anyway, before we get started today, I do, I am still a full-time air traffic controller, as you said, so the FAA requires me to give the disclaimer that the opinions given in this presentation are that of Andy Watson International LLC, not necessarily the same opinions as the Federal Aviation Administration. So now that we got that out of the way, um, basically, I was working at FAA headquarters at the time, and I had the pleasure of being the one air traffic controller who was assigned to go with the ABP 100 group, which is the accident investigators, um, to their morning roundup meeting. And in in that meeting, they go over what they call the stack. It's a stack of paperwork that goes over every accident and incident across the country for the previous day or the weekend. So this particular day, it was in April 2017, I was sitting there and the we were being briefed on a fatal accident that happened with a Pilatus PC12 it was a medical flight there was a pilot a flight nurse and a flight medic on board and luckily no patient they were dispatched out at 11:30 at night to go get to go pick up a patient and what happened was it was out of Amarillo Texas and they they get in the aircraft get it started up the pilot gets their IFR clearance because it it is IFR out. The ceiling that day was 700 broken, 1,200 feet overcast. And the pilot gets his clearance. They taxi out to runway four because it's a pretty gusty night. And they take off runway four. Well, shortly after they depart, the tower controller, who has a radar scope in the tower, notices that he's squawking the wrong beacon code. And that was a... It, the code he was squawking was from a previous flight. So he forgot to put in the new code. And he, so the controller tells him to reset the transponder, squawk the correct code, which he does. And he is starting his right turn on course. Because um, I believe it's for noise abatement over the city. They, he turn, they turned him right. It's like a 200 degree right hand turn. So once the controller saw the new code come up on the radar screen, he switched the pilot to departure control. So the pilot is in this climbing right-hand turn, checks on to departure, and the controller radar identifies them. And then shortly thereafter, for whatever reason, they the transponder stops squawking. So the radar controller told him to recycle the transponder. The pilot keyed up and acknowledged it. And then unfortunately crashed right after that. So the, as I'm sitting in this meeting, one of the other senior investigators brings up the fact that they're going to investigate this like they do all accidents. However, this sure does have all the earmarks of spatial disorientation. And at that point, uh, there was also some people on the conference call that dialed in. One of them was a flight surgeon from CAMI out in Oklahoma City, which is, for those people that don't, haven't heard of it, it's the Civil Aeronautical Medical Institute. They're the ones that deal with all the pilot medicals and everything human machine related. So he speaks up and says that this is ex- pretty much exactly a scenario that they use for their spatial disorientation simulator called the Vertigon. And he described what the Vertigon was, it's this white box that has the cockpit mock-up on the inside, the pilot sits in it, and of course there's no windows because it's simulating IMC. And what they do is the instructor is outside and gives instructions through an intercom acting as air traffic control. So they get them going and then they have them turn one direction or the other. It doesn't matter which direction, right or left. So they get them into their standard rate turn. And then once they're established in that, they give one of three instructions. The first one is to change radio frequency. The second one is to change their beacon code. Or the third one is to pick up a pin off the floor. And the reason why he said is because if a human being is in a bank angle without visual reference to the horizon or the ground, and they move their head at all, because all three of those items require them to move their head. If they move their head in that scenario, 100% of the time, that person will experience spatial disorientation. So, as I'm sitting there listening to this, I'm sitting there thinking through my pilot training years, I've, I've learned about spatial disorientation. I've never heard it described to me in that manner that if I'm in a bank angle without, without visual reference and I move my head, that, that it's game over at that point. So that, that got me at first, but then I started, but I also realized that I've never had any kind of training as an air traffic controller about spatial disorientation. And so I so after the meeting, I talked to a few of my colleagues and um, for the next couple of weeks, I actually talked to more of the accident investigators and then also the flight surgeon. And I, I come up with a procedure because what what I was sitting there thinking is, it, what I end up doing is a safety recommendation to the FAA. And first off is to do, do some research to see how many accidents with the probable cause of spatial disorientation were there. And how many of those you know, happened immediately after an air traffic control clearance, such as this Pilatus PC-12 did. So that was the first part. The second part was to see um, if, if the numbers justified it, maybe we should have a change air traffic procedures to have any single piloted aircraft or possible single piloted aircraft. And there's a few ways that we could figure that out I mean, with everybody filing their flight plans on iPads now, we could add a question there and either add a code into the remarks section of the flight plan or even add an icon to the radar data block or something. But that'd be pretty easy for the engineers to figure out. But the procedure would be if it's single pilot and it's IMC, so they're in the clouds, have, them have the pilot report wings level before issuing any other, any other clearances, such as a change of frequency, Change the beacon code, or any change or amendment to their their route, their route of flight, and unfortunately, they FA does did they decided not to implement the the change, and the reasoning is because the pilot in command is the ultimate authority, and there it's up to them if they're in that scenario to tell the controllers unable if they need to, because the old adage of Aviate then navigate then communicate as we've all been taught as pilots, that is very true. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, was, I I, think the procedure would have been good because single pilot IFR is some of the most demanding flying that any pilot can do. So if we could take that one additional item off their plate, I think that could be great. But at the end of the day, every pilot out there can still implement this just on the other side of the frequency. So if a pilot or if a controller tells the pilot when they're in this scenario, in the bank angle in the clouds to do something, all they have to do is key up and just say unable or standby. Now, I know that goes completely against what we're taught as general aviation pilots. It kind of goes against everything that we know to tell air traffic control no for something or just tell them to stand by. But I promise you, it's okay to tell air traffic control to stand by or unable. Airline pilots do it all the time. And it's controllers tell pilots all the time to stand by. It's okay for the pilot to do the same if you need a minute. Andy, so let me ask you,
2: let me ask you a question real quick about that. So sure. now I'm coming out of a, a high density traffic area, like the triad in mm-hmm. New York, or, you know, coming out of a very busy uh, airport, a uh, Teeterboro, if you will, or something mm-hmm. like that, where immediately after takeoff, I'm supposed to turn and, you know, get out of the airspace. So I'm in the soup at 400 feet. I'm making my left hand turn you're you're talking a mile a minute or the air traffic controller is talking a mile a minute
0: we we don't do that (laughs) i know you don't yeah
2: (laughs) tell me about it um you gotta have you gotta have shorthand brain when you're listening to what's going on but now all of a sudden because they're controlling five other airplanes that are crossing traffic and everything else and they want you to turn and get you out of the airspace i mean I, i understand what you're saying and i think it's great to help a pilot is it practical though in those kinds of situations?
0: I yes. I, I think so, yes. I mean, obviously there's enough accidents that people are not walking away from that this could potentially stop that. So yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. Again, the adage is aviate, then navigate, then communicate. So are you gonna openly.
2: are you gonna upset the controller if it's like stand by dude, I I'm gonna go straight <laughs> ahead for a little bit here.
0: Well all of us controllers tend to get upset at times, but it's usually pretty short lived. So
2: <laughs> Okay.
0: But if you need to. You heard that, it here
2: first.
4: <laughs> there you so, have it. So, Andy, I have a question, follow up question, what you were saying earlier that uh, you implied that there's a belief, whether widespread or not, that if a pilot says something on the order of standby or unable, they'll get into some kind of trouble. Now, you're saying that's not true at all. Why do you no. think there's a perception out there that the big bad FAA will get on their case?
0: Well, I, I, I just. I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's, that's years of a, of a compounded thought process there. I know that's what I always thought when I was uh, learning to fly and all that kind of stuff. You don't want to say the wrong thing to air traffic control. You don't want to do this or that. But I can tell you at the end of the day, even when it comes to something, if, if there's a mistake or something like that that you're making, it's much better to let us know and, and get past it than it is to try to cover up because a lot of times that's going to create other issues for something else. Okay, and, so then
2: following on that then, mm-hmm. does that constitute an operational error?
0: Well, you know, an operational error is one of the few times that a pilot deviation is required to get filed. Um, if there's a loss of separation, that's going to be in QA, QC's hands, and they must take it wherever it goes. Um, however, if there is just something minor, there's no harm, no foul. I know myself and most controllers, we would rather just we're very, we're usually very vocal on the frequency of, hey, you screwed up and making sure the pilot realizes they screwed up at times. But outside of that, that's usually the end of it. Most of the time, we don't even want to do the paperwork. I mean, let's be honest. But uh, yeah, it's, so it's it's better just to live up to it, I guess. And But let us know. I mean, if you're doing something different, depending on what the situation is, I may have to change my plan to move other airplanes to, for whatever that situation is, so
2: now, before we came on the air, one of the things that uh, we just we discussed was uh, changing frequencies. Now you have a pilot who's in distress. Okay, so they confess that they are, you know, spatially disoriented or at least screwed up. They can't follow a heading. They, you know, they're turning left when they should be turning right and going up when they should be going down and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so now the controller is plugged in. They know that there's a pilot in distress. And next thing you know, they go, okay, contact so-and-so on 122.5. You know, my my thought as, as an accident investigator and, of course, coming up through the business uh, at a very young age and learning to fly, was that, well, the air traffic controller, if you declare an emergency, all of a sudden now, it's going to be, you know, one-on-one. That's all you have. You don't have to worry about you know, switching frequencies and talking to multiple controllers and everything else. But mm-hmm. is that really still in existence today? Because the pilot's got enough of a workload just trying to get the wings level as is, is you're talking about, and trying mm-hmm. not to point the airplane at the ground and, you know, increasing speed to Mach 4 so that they hit in a very, <laughs> in a very bad place. Right. So, you know, trying to lessen the workload of a distressed pilot like that is it not better just to keep them on the same frequency, having, having uh, them talk to one voice, if you will?
0: Well, to be honest with you, it, the answer is it depends because our sectors are set up. To, basically, a sector is you draw a line on a map, and that's your lateral boundaries, and we have a bottom altitude and a top altitude. Sometimes that bottom altitude is ground, the surface up to whatever, and those frequencies are tested for specific coverage of those areas so especially on the east coast it's not not as much but if you start getting out to the midwest and further out west that can become a real problem where you don't even have coverage so Mm. we can't do it that way um but i so that's that's one component of it i have seen where um, emergency aircraft have been switched three or four times all in the same facility and it's in my opinion I, i i'm more of the pilot thinking though of, yeah, it would have been nice if they would have just left them on the frequency, but that was also a a professional airline crew who has the duties all divvied up and and obviously they can handle it. So if you're ever in that situation as a pilot, I recommend, hey, can I stay on this frequency or can I go to guard? You can always go to the guard frequency. Every facility has to have that frequency on. The only hard part with that is, is if it's in some of the radar facilities, like in the centers and stuff, it's in the building, but it may be in the area across the hallway. It may not be in the area that has the sector that you're working. So that's the caveat with that. But I do love the idea of doing the single frequency stuff, and I, I wish it was done more often. But there are some con- physical constraints to it, if if you would. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I know that you know as a pilot, you you have a benefit um, because you can use that pilot experience when you're, uh, when you're giving instruction and you know uh, what's going on up in the air. Now, a lot of your colleagues that aren't pilots, um, do they, do they have that same sense of situational awareness when they understand that a pilot may be in distress? Um, Do they ever, you know, if you're sitting next to somebody and he goes, Hey, you know, Andy, I got a guy who, you know, he can't follow instruction. He's going left and right and up and down and everywhere else. Do they ever, you know, call on you or somebody like you who's got at least a piloting background say, hey, why don't you plug in and handle this guy or whatever?
0: Yes, actually, most facilities um, know who all the flight instructors are, actually. And if you remember um, the flight down in Florida or off the coast that uh, where the passenger ended up like landing that caravan, they went down and got the guy on break. That was a flight instructor and brought him back up. So that does happen. Um, in situations like that, other situations, if it's just something like you described, yeah, they'll turn around, and, hey, what about this? And um, we'll give our, what we can to help in that situation. But usually the, the thing about controllers that they're very good at is figuring out when something is not normal, part of our everyday stuff. So if we tell somebody to turn left 30 degrees, to send maintain 3000 feet, and they're not, they're not doing it they're going to repeat it. A lot of times they'll start only giving one thing at a time instead of combining up clearances. And the other thing we do is we talk to each other, whether it's the person sitting next to us in the area, or we get on the landline and call the other facility and say, hey, this pilot's not been listening. Make sure you keep an eye on him. I, I've made that call at least a handful of times throughout my career. And luckily those all ended well, but yeah, we, we communicate between ourselves to try to help out as much as we can and when we have a pilot that seems to be doing that what we'll, even like when we're vectoring them in for approach type stuff we'll give them a much better we're not going to try to get them on the final approach fix we're going to add in some buffer there for them too
4: now although every pilot is uh susceptible to spatial disorientation mm-hmm. what are the risk factors that you have seen that come up again and again is it single pilot operation is it low time pilots what are the things that if you're in that situation should cause you to pay extra attention to things
0: that could lead to disorientation? Well, I'll be honest with you. I don't think that spatial disorientation is a situation that it only affects one group over the other. Uh, this Pilatus PC-12, I, I, that, that pilot had his ATP. He was a CFI, I, MEI. In fact, uh, he had just shy of 5,900 hours. So he was very experienced flying for the corporate world for many years. <clears throat> and that was that on the reverse side a couple people that um a couple more famous people that have been involved with these JFK Jr he went into that sp- um sp- uh the steep spiral and the graveyard spin and during a dark night and he was on the opposite end of that he he didn't have very much experience at all and then on the other side one more more experience was um Kobe Bryant's helicopter accident that he was in that pilot was the chief pilot for their operation. So, and he had thousands of hours too. So it's, it's not one group over the other, it's when this happens, it becomes a problem. It seems like, and this is just my guess, I haven't actually looked into it um, to, the, to study it, but it seems like the single pilot operators are, are the bigger issue, because if you have another pilot sitting beside you, it's easy just to say your airplane. I got the liens, your airplane. Um, the single pilot doesn't have that, uh, that, that luxury. Yeah. So that's uh, where the issue comes in at hand.
2: Now, I've done a number of accidents, Andy, and actually I use the air traffic control tape from one of those accidents where the pilot got himself into trouble at uh, 19,000 feet in a um, Cessna 210 over the Rocky Mountains at night picking up ice. And I use it for two reasons. One, the pilot um, is talking to the air traffic controller. And they're doing a lot of talking but they're not communicating the controller isn't getting it the pilot is saying i need to go down i can't maintain altitude the controller is trying to accommodate him to some extent saying look if you need to climb climb i'll give you a block of altitude it's like dude i can't go up i can only go down well i know that because of the mea and the terrain out there the controller had to take that that into account but Mm if he had given him a different heading, he could have flown him over gradually descending terrain so that the pilot could gradually descend. Okay. That's great in hindsight, because I, as an accident investigator, can study that and dissect it and do all of those things. The pilot eventually lost it. He iced up his airplane and he narrated all the way down. He had the mic keyed and he's narrating in a very high pitched voice all the way down. Okay. In that particular situation, I've done a lot of accidents where you have pilots that are, you know, basically talking to commun- uh, to the air traffic controller and then saying, I need some help up here. What help? I know that you're physically not in the aircraft. You can't help them fly mm-hmm. it. You can't take over. You can't really coach them through it because you mm-hmm. don't know what the dynamic is. But I've heard pilots go, I need some help up here. As an air traffic controller, what are their limitations to the, quote, help you can give them?
0: Well, I mean, first and foremost, we can, in that situation, well, here's, here's a misnomer that a lot of pilots don't realize. If a pilot tells me that they need help, I give props to that pilot, first off, because that is a good, clear, and concise way of communicating that, hey, something's messed up. I can't do what you're telling me. I need help, right? We all understand that. To me, that's the same word as triggering as if you would key up and say, I'm declaring an emergency. Okay. okay. We're all on the same page at that point. I need help. I have an emergency, whatever. But the big misnomer that a lot of pilots don't realize is if you tell me you need help, I'm probably going to declare the emergency for you and not even tell you because I don't want you to have the stress of that. There's some controllers that will say that just because they don't realize that that uh, what, what it really means, that they could do it without telling them. I've, I've heard it before. But most of the time, I think the controllers declare the emergency without telling them because we don't want them to have the stress of it. But once an emergency decision has been made, we can do whatever we need to help and aid them to help in that situation. So if the MEA is 2,200, but you got to get down to 2,000 feet to get out of the super icing, well, guess what? Let's get you down there. But let's like you said, let's turn you 45 degrees to the right because the NEA lowers here another 20 miles over that direction. Got it. So yes, clear, concise, just tell me what you need. And we'll, we'll do whatever we need to meet the emergency in those situations and declaring the emergency is not the end of the world. In fact, most emergencies I don't think have ever been followed up on, but I know the uh, regs say that the administrator may, ha- may have you fill out paperwork saying why, if you do, but most of the pilots I've flown with that if it had emergencies, um, you no. Know, only one has gotten a phone call just to make sure he landed safely. So,
2: now you know, as a pilot, and of course, Todd and John are pilots as well. We all have the highest levels of moral standard. We have all sorts of etiquette. We are very polite all the time when we're talking. <laughs> have you ever had anybody jump ship <laughs> and yell at you and tell you that for whatever reason, Using some choice words, they're not doing what you want them to do.
0: <laughs> I have. It's actually the only person I've ever turned in for a pilot deviation, but I had an E-145 pilot that we assigned 290 knots or greater. And they're right. At, they're the first airplane out of the departure push that's coming out. So they're first in line of 15 airplanes, all spaced six, seven miles apart. And we're looking at the ground speed because we can only see the ground speeds. The radar actually the computer system figures out what your ground speed is based on your radar target hits, so we don't know what your indicated is, but we can tell if you're not doing what everybody else is doing because everybody else is the same and you're the one sto- sore thumb that's sticking out, right? So I tell my radar controller, I said, Hey, ask them their airspeed because it was like four and a half minutes later. And um, the FO later found out, keyed up, and said that uh, 250 knots increasing to 290 when we assign them 290 or better and uh the controller at that point is like i told you to do 290 you're we got compression you need to do 290 and the most arrogant thing i've ever heard a, a pilot say on frequency he keyed up and he said yeah center we're doing 250 knots today if you don't like it you can turn us out but we're doing 250 knots that's it <laughs> Well, OK, <laughs> if he would have told us that from the very get go, everybody would have been 250 or we would have got him turned out and we would have made the plan work. If you don't like what we give you, tell us, we'll, we'll come up with plan B, but don't accept something and then not do it. That's a very quick way to get a pilot deviation, even if we don't want to do the paperwork.
2: That sounds um, like that sounds like yeah. when I talk to John. <laughs> You know, I tell him to do something. He tells me to pound stand. So
4: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, here's where my yeah. uh, FOIA experience that comes in handy. I uh, did okay. a FOIA request for one incident, and I asked for the control tower of communications. And they said it was the contract tower. We private facility, we can't do that. But an FA tower, you can do that. So this pilot mm-hmm. who had the choice words, the possibility exists. Of a FOIA request of an FAA tower that would make you the star of YouTube.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I I think my voice is all over liveatc.net too, so <laughs> so it's also there. But uh, yeah.
2: Well, the good thing is uh, if you fly through uh, at least uh, the the Washington D.C. airspace and Potomac Center. It, that's what it's called like they changed the name so many darn times but it used to be washington center potomac center potomac whatever yeah, um, potomac you're, in cent- you're in the center you're
0: in the center i'm washington center yeah washington and then you center, have potomac right. tracon
2: yep potomac tracon yeah and so if you're flying through that airspace you're probably going to be talking to this guy so uh definitely <laughs> definitely mind your p's and q's so <laughs> john you've been sitting there very quiet just absorbing all of this discussion, but I know you have a good question.
3: Yeah, you know, really, you guys have hit the questions because they're all pilot uh, focus, and uh, you know, in maintenance we have our own issues, but usually they're not associated with turning your head and and whether or not the wings are level.
2: But we okay, well then I got a question. With, I got a maintenance question. Lapses. I got a maintenance question for you, Andy. Okay, hey if that big bulb in right in the middle that you're looking at that big radar bulb right there in the front goes out, do you have the authority to call into the desk and change it? <laughs> I mean, that's a maintenance question. I figure I had to throw something. at that, that,
0: That's true. For the people that know me, one thing is for sure. You don't want me trying to work on anything like that. because it I'll probably never work again. So.
2: <laughs> well, we, we always like to to wrap the show up with takeaways and, and, you know, give something back to, uh, to our listeners, whether they're pilots or non-pilots, but they can benefit from it. Give us, uh, give us your thoughts about, you know, what it is that you want pilots to know about, you know, interacting with uh, the air traffic control system and the air traffic controllers.
0: Well, I think uh, there's two things. First and foremost, it is perfectly acceptable to tell air traffic control to stand by or unable. Make sure you keep yourself safe. That's first off. Second off, remember that if you're in a bank angle and you're in the clouds, make sure you whatever you do, you keep your head in the same position. Do not move it at that point in time. Wait till you go wings level and then fulfill your duties after that. But until then, again, going back to number one, it's perfectly acceptable to tell air traffic control stand by when you need to. Yeah, it's
2: good advice because people and a lot of pilots... Um, They have an aversion to use that word emergency or confess that they need help because they're always afraid that they're going to get a phone call or a knock on the door from the FAA. And, you know, as we talked earlier, um, I can defend a pilot who said, yes, I had an emergency. Yes, I needed assistance. Yes, I was able to successfully get the airplane on the ground because that demonstrates good aeronautical decision making and judgment versus losing the airplane because you know your pride gets in the way you lose control of the airplane you crash you either hurt or kill yourself or whoever's flying with you or even people on the ground so mm-hmm. um I, I think that that's one of those misnomers one of those things that uh that pilots really should accept that hey look if you need help you got a voice in your ear that can give you some help and uh, you have, you you're going to get it without fear of any kind of retribution or or something like that. So, um, And you know, I'll take that one step
0: further. It was, what, eight or nine years ago now, the FAA actually changed their culture from, from basically going out and violating people to teach them a lesson to the educational thought process of coaching. So they may have a conversation with you about it, but as long as you're open to the conversation and you're not just telling them to pound sand and you're being extremely rude, because let's be honest, they still have the authority to do that, but if you are open to say the criticism and learning, they're they're going to be much more better about just having that conversation, making sure that you learn from it and go on from there. I know that that's actually an overall culture change that they have been that they have shifted to. So it's much better to to voice it, voice the issues and and go from there.
2: Well, those are it's been a great discussion and definitely great points that you bring up. We really appreciate you coming on the show and uh sharing your insights, both from the ATC standpoint and from your shameless, shameless <laughs> um uh, you know, publishing of your book right behind your head. I mean,
3: well, you know he, what, told me, he told me that he couldn't come on the show until he got his poster done. Yeah, great. <laughs> that's that's just yeah.
2: It is what it is. We know where you live. So. That's true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, very good. We really appreciate it, Andy. Thanks for your insights. Um, well, thank so you with, so
0: much. I appreciate it.
2: Well, good. Well, we expect to have you back on the show if we have air traffic control issue questions, or of course, we dissect accidents all the time that may involve air, uh, air traffic control. So we'll definitely want to get your insights on that. So
0: yep, you bet. You. let me know. I'd be happy to help. Well,
2: Todd, I will uh, leave you with the second to the last word (laughs) because I definitely have to leave Master John.
4: Oh, goodness.
2: (laughs) With our final word.
4: Well, I know during the discussion today, we talked about several situations, especially IFR situations. But this is just to remind pilots that anyone, no matter what your level of experience, could be, even if temporarily, in an IFR situation. So all the things you talked about, keeping your head straight in the bank, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, If you don't remember it, go back to whatever documentation you have and read up on it, because when it happens, remember, aviate, then navigate, and communicate, except if you're communicating with people in the cockpit with you where you're cursing. That's okay. But otherwise, keep your head straight and keep that airplane level.
3: Good advice. John? You know, before I go into my standard spiel, and, and I've said this in other podcasts, you know, we are all brothers in this aviation business. And we essentially all have each other's back. All you have to say is, I need help. That's all you have to say. And help will materialize out of nowhere. Yep. So now I'll do my standard stand spiel, which <laughs> I've changed a little bit. Uh-oh. Right? So. I, as, as we've been looking through accidents to doing this on these podcasts, Todd and I have been going through oceans and oceans of previous accidents. One of the things that we've noticed is a huge, what appears to be a, a very significant spike in student pilot or low time pilot accidents. And one of the things that, are, that I would encourage every pilot out there to do. Especially if you're renting airplanes, or specifically if you're renting airplanes, is to get yourself a rental insurance policy. It's one thing to you know have a bad accident and maybe you perish. But if you don't perish, uh, you're going to have a big financial problem. And if you do peril, you just if you do you know kill yourself <laughs> in an accident, then you're going to leave the mess for your family. So get yourself a good insurance policy for flying someone else's airplane. And when you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning. All right, And that includes the weather, not only where you are, where you're going, but everything in between. And don't get yourself into a box that we see so often, where you can't go back, you can't go forward, there's no place to go except hopefully try to get through it, and oftentimes that's not the case. You go out to your airplane, do a good pre-flight. If you don't know what a good pre-flight is, get a mechanic to come out with you and show you what a good pre-flight is on that type of airplane you're going to fly. And after you get in the airplane, put that head on a swivel because we're seeing a spike in not only near misses, but actually impacts With airplanes, seeing a void is not 100%. And we need to put the awareness up a lot higher so that we get a higher percentage of seeing a void than we have right now. So please, please fly safely.
1: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.